Rosh Hashanah. It means holy worship. Join me, your host, Robert Randall, as we delve into biblical instrumentation and music history to discover the sounds behind the words of our Savior, Yeshua Messiah. It is a beautiful Monday evening here in the Colorado Rockies. I'm your host, Robert Randall, once again with another show of Kadosh Shekah, Holy Worship, Understand the Sounds Behind Our Master, Yeshua, the Messiah. Father, today we give you glory as we listen to part two of this reconstruction of the silver lyre of the Ur of the Chaldees. Father, we ask that, again, that we understand that this is for an educational benefit for the body of Messiah. And we thank you for this opportunity, Father, to understand the roots of music. It's a joyous thing. This is a very unique area of study. And we give you all the praise and glory for this, Father. In Yeshua's name, amen. Okay, today we continue with part two of Richard Dumbrill who will be playing some of his reconstructed Silver Lyre, as well as finishing with some final comments as to the construction of the theory or the science of the sound behind the strings themselves within pentatonic scales, um, as well as, as in other reconstructive uh, areas. So you will really be able to hear music in its purest science in terms of sound and how... Uh, notation is brought about. But this is from one of the most ancient sources, probably from the time of Nebuchadnezzar, as we'll hear today from textual critic Irving Finkel, who is a Babylonian scholar, a textual scholar, much like Nehemi Gordon is with Hebrew texts. Irving Finkel is going to be detailing to us some of the cuneiform tablets that discuss the musical systems that took music from a seven-note system into a nine-note system. And so with that being understood, uh, that is going to be at the end of our show today. Family Messiah, I'd like to do an examination of the string instruments again, just as a conclusive packaging of each of them so that you have a better idea of what these instruments are in a more succinct formation. Because much of the research that I went into had a lot of debate surrounding it. And I would like to at least give you a reasonable presentation of what each of these instruments are so that we can end on this topic and move forward with our woodwind instruments. In this Havru Haraka Emunah, this Hebrew walk of faith, we know that one of our staple chapters within scripture is Leviticus 23, which talks about the Moedim, or the feasts of the Lord. Feast of Yehovah. With this in mind, let us now turn to Daniel chapter 3. We need to have an understanding of the one passage that gives almost every single musical instrument within Scripture. Let's read through this together. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, whose height was sixty cubits, and the breadth of it six cubits. 
he set it up in the plain of Dura, in the province of Babel. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent to gather together the princes, the deputies, and the governors, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces, to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Skipping to verse 4. Then the herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, peoples, nations, and languages, that whenever you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, that you fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. And whoever doesn't fall down and worships, shall the same hour be cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Therefore at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, the nations, and the languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Therefore at that time, certain Kasdim came near and brought accusation against the Yehudim. They answered Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man that shall hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever doesn't fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. There are certain Yehudim whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Bevel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Vednego. These men, O king, have not regarded you. They don't serve your gods, nor worship the golden image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and fury, commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered them, Is it on purpose, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my god, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Now, if you are ready, whenever you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, that you fall down and worship the golden image which I have made. Well, but if you don't worship, you shall be cast in the same hour into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If it be so, our God in whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods, nor worship the golden image which you have set up. Biblical dramatization set aside, I do hope that you can appreciate Daniel chapter 3 as being the go-to chapter for biblical musical instruments as a key reference point. I'd like to encapsulate all the instruments that we've studied in season one of this show thus far. 
all the string instruments, we've looked at the kinor, which was considered to be a portable lyre or a guitar by some scholars reckoning. It was also a instrument that was played with a plectorum, which is a small bone staff, much like an ancient guitar pick of the day. We also looked at the nebel and its brother, the nebel azor. The nebel was a harp of moderate size and it was portable. It not only was detailed in its composition by Josephus, the historian of the first century, but also was said to have 12 strings. While the Nabel Ezor, its name comes from Ezor, Hebraically the root being the number 10, as having 10 strings. We also looked at the, the Sebeka, which was a large harp that was also fixed to a stand in some accounts. Then we also saw the Santarin, which is based off of the book of Psalms, which is in modern sense, a dulcimer of the East and West from Hungary and in country folk here in the West, as well as the surprising modern incarnation of what could probably be considered the grand piano. Finally, there is the katara, which was a lyre or a guitar and its namesake gives it away into the modern incarnation of the guitar. I'd like to now share with you the resources used in this broadcast. Dr. John Steiner's The Music of the Bible, an account of the development of modern musical instruments from ancient types. Dennis McCorkey's book, The Davidic Cipher, Unlocking the Psalms at musicofthebible.com. Egyptologist David Roll's book, Exodus, Myth or History, as well as the Bible Cantina app. And I must apologize for I did not realize where the Bible Cantina app got its resources from quoting church fathers. Apparently, they pull their quotations from Wikipedia, and so I will do my utmost to find a better resource in future broadcasts. Hebrew Nation Radio, I would like to personally thank you for this opportunity. What was originally intended to be an academic literary work you have made possible to be a radio broadcast to thousands of listeners around the globe in the body of Messiah. If the Spirit has led you to do so, please donate to Hebrew Nation Radio. None of us, the broadcasters or programmers or any of those who dedicate their time, are here without your donations. The same goes for the podcasts. I'd like to thank Anchor Podcasts for distributing to multiple pl platforms and enriching our audience on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and others. If you'd like to find a total list of our distributors, go to anchor.fm and look up Kadoshika Holy Worship. You can even leave voice messages with your comments or questions about the show and donate to the podcast as well. Finally, we're going to end with our part two of Richard Dumbrill's discussing his reconstructed silver lyre in its tuning from Babylonian understanding, as well as Dr. Irving Finkel's understanding of the cuneiform Babylonian tablets and how music was transformed from a seven-note system to a nine-note system. This is a rare treat and a beautiful interview. Please enjoy. The tuning of this instrument was a rather more complex matter. I have spoken before, and so did Irving Finkel, about a cuneiform text, which is called UET 726, which is a late Babylonian copy of a much older text, which was called Nebitnu 32, 
Uh, and let me do that to you with a collection of, of lexical texts, and the second, 32nd tablet of which was devoted to the naming of musical strings. This tablet mentioned nine strings, and they were labeled first string, second string, third thin string, fourth string created by the god Ea, who was the god of balance and the god of music, fifth string, fourth string of the behind, third string of the behind, second string of the behind, and behind string. For a long time, uh, we wondered what was the reason for this uh, form of numbering the notes, and uh, the strings of the notes. And I came to the following conclusion. Because Sumerians were highly motivated by all symmetrical things, I derived that the tuning of the instrument would also be done in symmetry. And therefore, they would take a central note, which is this one, and they would tune a fifth from it, going up, and from the central note, they would tune a fifth down. And then, from the fifth down, they would tune a fourth up, and from the uppermost string, they would tune a fourth down. Then from the central string, they would tune a fourth down and up. So therefore, they were arriving at a system which had to be a pentatonic system. To complement the hemiatonic system, they would have to add notes within the span. And these notes would be and this one, which amount to the tritone, which is the satanic interval in music. Indeed, it was called in the Middle Ages Sifa Diabolus in Musica Est. C, B and F is the devil in music. And of course, this, this uh, interval is diabolical. But anyway, it had to, it needs by mathematical necessity to exist in any mode uh, that you can think of. But this uh, uh, produced the following scale, which is what I call the anatonic system, because it's a system made of nine notes. Now, we have had a look at this lie, and we see that indeed it has 11 strings. So what was going on? Well, as you can see, this bass string is offset. It is not within the trapezoidal shape of the lyre. And therefore, my conclusion is that this was added a bit later, and therefore, in order to respect symmetry, this one was added at the same time. And uh, we, we then have 11 strings. Why did they not like the, the system with seven notes that we know as heptatonic, or the 11 the string system, which is called uh, the Handicap chord or the Triskaidic chord with 13 strings, because these numbers are not regular numbers. And we know from uh, tablets we found in the Temple Library in Nippur that the music system is based strictly on regular numbers, excluding 7, excluding 11 and 13. And therefore, the ideal number to contain the musical scale was a night note system, the enatonic system. Now, I will 
show you how the tuning was done roughly, because it take, can take a certain amount of time. Now, we said we've got the central note is a D, and they will tune the fifth above, but this is about just, and then a fifth down, that's about just. Then a fourth up, and then a fourth down from here, one, two, three, four. And from the fifth, the fourth, and here too. So we have, which is a pentatonic scale. Then we need to tune the third, and this one having the triton. In fact, we are tuned here. Then we can tune the first string, and the last one, amounting to a triton also. So, we have a complete system here of 11 notes that we call a handicap chord. I believe that the handicap chord was a development from the energetic system at a time they said, they said, well, you know, it's nice to be forbidden having 11 strings because the Nippur text says so. And why not try with 11 strings? It, it enlarges our span a bit more. And of course, it will allow for more modes to be played within a system, as indeed with 11 strings, we have the first mode, two, three. We have, which is the mode of F. And here, mode of G, and then, mode of A, and, mode of B. So, effectively, 11 strings allows for having four modes within. So it's a very interesting uh, uh, instrument. But these modes are with seven notes and this tends to indicate that this style of music based on the N.A. chord was a transition period between the nine-note system and the seven-note system, which was adopted uh, effectively uh, and completely not before the first millennium BC. Now, going back to the ancient tuning, where we have within the nine notes the following scale, the way to generate the next mode would be to locate the tritone. Here it is. And then to correct this note by tuning it up a semitone higher. Then we have this in the following mode, and so on. So from the mode, the original mode, they would tune, they would correct a note of the tritone in order to generate the next mode.
UET774, which are the tuning instructions, will be all Babylonian. UET774, which is your primary manuscript, is certainly old Babylonian in date. We can tell this from the script, which is a well-established matter. We, there are many other old Babylonian tablets from Ur, so this is certainly the first half of the second millennium BC. I think you can take that for granted. Yes, that's great. And uh, the, this other text, which is called UET7126, the lexical text. The lexical text. Yes, that's a different matter. That is part of a lexical series. And one of the wonderful things about ancient Mesopotamian scholars is they compiled these dictionaries, lists of words, lists of uh, grammatical points, lists of god names and so forth, which are very useful for us. And there was one particular series called Nabnitu, which was, in fact, probably got underway about the, the last few centuries of the second millennium BC, maybe about 1200 BC, something like that, they started to make lists of uh, Sumerian and Akkadian words under the name Nabnitu. And there are 32 tablets that make up this whole composition. And the last one is the one which is most important for music because the scribes who compiled it took the old Sumerian words for the names of the strings on this instrument and translated them into their Babylonian equivalents because the cuneiform writing, as you know, sometimes has, uh, covers text in the Sumerian language, sometimes in the Babylonian language, and you can't tell when you look at the cuneiform signs which language it is until you read it. But with a dictionary like this, you have an example of a scholarly mind who wants to make order out of all sorts of disparate material. And in this particular case, they take the old Sumerian string names in order and they give the Babylonian equivalents, the two languages in a bilingual list. Do we have evidence of an earlier text in Sumerian only with these terms? Uh, there is a little fragment which has the same list on it, which, judging by the script, is older, probably from the end of the second millennium. You see, the big one from Ur, the most important lexical text, was probably written in about the 7th century BC. The manuscript itself is what we call Neo-Babylonian, so it comes out of a school maybe after the fall of Assyria from the time of Nebuchadnezzar or later, where uh, some scholarly, in some scholarly context, this text was being recopied again. So the manuscript from Ur, which has come to us, which we've been studying, itself was written in the first millennium. But because of this little fragment, we can be sure that the content, the actual ideas and the words on it, come from a slightly earlier period. And this is nothing surprising, because the whole emphasis of cuneiform scholarship was to preserve learning from a previous period, to preserve it exactly, to pass it on, to copy it, to transmit it, and the musical information which we have now from these scattered pieces is part of this program where things were established, they were understood, they were written down, and then they were preserved and copied and copied and copied and copied. So we've been, we've been talking about these manuscripts as manuscripts, and of course they are wonderful from the cuneiformist's point of view as important resources. When it actually comes to appraising them in terms of their importance for the history of music, they are colossal, because what we have uh, uniquely, and what has become clear perhaps for the first time quite recently, is we have archaeological evidence for the instruments themselves, we have images of them, we have graphic representations of them, and we also have, as it were, living texts written by musical minds about this material. So it means that a musicologist has the wonderful opportunity to combine 
an instrument, a reconstruction of an instrument, an understanding of its detail with a text written from that culture which has survived to us where the two can be combined to produce real understanding for the first time of what this music really was like.